Hello and welcome to MacBytes episode 165. I'm Mike Thomas and I'm here with my co-host Elaine Giles. Hi there. Welcome back and if you're new, great to have you with us and welcome to the MacBytes family. MacBytes is a tech podcast where we share our thoughts on tech news, Apple Kit, and so much more. We also review apps and as IT professionals we share both our love for hardware and software. We're a quirky show. And just to prove it, let me share one of our stories from the Newbie's Guide to MacBytes that you'll find at macbytes.co.uk. This time, it's the MacBytes Marathon, a challenge beyond most challenges. It's a back-to-back listen of all of the MacBytes shows ever released. In 2021, it got even more challenging. The MacBytes Ultra Marathon. That's all the MacBytes shows together with all the marooned at MacBytes headquarters shows. So a total at the moment of 669 shows. Then there's the brave folks who have tackled the ultimate MacBytes marathon. Pretty much an Iron Man challenge. All the MacBytes shows, all the marooned at MacBytes HQ shows and every MacBytes after hours for a total of 856 shows. I do believe that now we've finally added the special episodes to the Marooned feed, that Tracy is the first to do the lot. But do tell us where you're at with the challenge. Even if that's a single show right now, we want to know. So what do we have today? Some seriously intense Shakespearean surveillance and draconian domination. Mm. Yet another crackdown on remote work at Apple. According to reports, and I quote, Apple is closely monitoring attendance via badge records to ensure employees are coming to the office at least three times a week. Why does this remind me of the old clocking in machine? And I'm wondering, because I've never worked anywhere like that, but I know you have. I'm wondering how I know about clocking in machines. So I had a ponder. You know where I first saw that and, and asked my mother what it was? Go on. Coronation Street, Mike Baldwin's factory. (laughs) Anyway, Apple is giving employees escalating warnings if they don't meet the in-person work requirements. Ooh, escalating warnings. That sounds like a kink you might need to pay extra for in certain circumstances. But it, it carries on. It doesn't leave it there. No, escalating warnings and... Failure to comply could result in termination. That's exterminated, not terminated. It's close enough and pretty accurate. Plus the fact, if you listen closely, I'll think you'll find it's actually Timmy's voice. O-M-G, she's right. Timmy has been moonlighting as a Dalek. He must need the extra cash. Poor soul. But back to the actual story. Apple are reported to be trying to save money. I have no idea why, given how much of it they actually have. And precisely what that has to do with the remote working policy isn't made clear. Unless firing folks who are still nervous of a full-time return to the workplace makes them the savings they're looking for. Anyway, it's only a matter of time before the next pandemic or global crisis, and Apple should be careful lest the peasants revolt. It actually reminded me of a LinkedIn post I devoured with great glee only a few weeks ago. 
there was a company clamping down on remote work. The staff had no choice but to comply. A few weeks into this new clampdown, the boss rang a staff member at 10pm on a Saturday night. Now, you might be wondering why the company was involved with IT security. Anyway, the employee ignored the call. On Monday morning, the boss hauled them in for a dressing down. The employee shrugged and said, I was at home. And said the boss, brace yourself. I'm not allowed to work from home. So I didn't. <laughs> Love it. There's no real answer to that, is there? Pretty much my approach back when I was naive enough for which read stupid enough, to work for somebody else. Not in terms of remote work. You must be kidding. He'd have had a fit at the thought of that. But my boss's gripe was the car park. It was tiny. It was a weird shape and it was tiny. And it was full of employee cars. He threw his toys out of the pram. And with them, all the cars out of the car park. This was because a client arrived and, and there was no parking space. Um, but at that stage, at least it was fair. Nobody's car was in the car park. But over the course of that day and the next couple of days, too, there was a seemingly unending queue of folks crawling into his office to plead for special treatment. It was brown nosing of the first order. I sat back and made a list of the turncoats prepared to sell their colleagues out. Because if we'd have stuck together, everybody would have been fine. They were scabs. So unwilling to grovel, I plotted and I planned. There were only two alternatives. Uh, parking in the local department store car park all day, which was going to cost me, brace yourself for this one, it shocked me, £160 a month. This was back in the early 90s. I don't think my parents' mortgage was anywhere near that expensive back then. The second alternative was getting a taxi every day. There was a local company who did me a deal and it proved to be cheaper than the car park. So I went with the taxi, which had additional benefits. All the drivers knew why I'd been forced to take a taxi. They played along by blasting their radios at deafening levels when they arrived to collect me. They tooted relentlessly if I wasn't out of the door at 5.30 on the dot and they generally made it their business to annoy him in any way they could. For my part, I arrived at 8.30 every day and took to reading a book, with my feet up on my desk until 9am. I then got read the riot act. Apparently, I was letting my secretary down leaving at 5.30, when she had to stay until the work was done. And I was letting the team down by not starting until 9am. I suggested he check my contract, working hours of which were 9 to 5.30. Didn't have a leg to stand on. I waited because I knew it would happen sooner or later. And it did. What did? Well, as a solicitor, it was only a matter of time before I needed to attend court. And I sure wasn't driving there in my car. Taxi for Giles, stat. Well, it happened. I said I'd book a taxi. He nearly collapsed. The court was 25 miles away. That was going to cost him at least £60 for every round trip. He very generously said I could use the car park on those days. I very politely told him what he could do with his kind offer. On pass. 
Now, despite the fact he thought he was the best negotiator there was, one look at my face and he knew he was beaten. Never try negotiating with someone who's got nothing to lose, no matter how good you think you are. My taxi friends continued serenading him every time they passed the office for months. <laughs> I will never understand this. Why don't you work with your staff? Why did you hire them if you don't trust them to work anywhere in the office, remotely, anywhere? Some people are, are happier and as such work better in the office. Others don't. They're more comfortable away from office politics and as such are more productive at home. And as I've said, Apple need to consider what happens when the next global crisis hits because they're going to be left the way they're going with nothing but employees who need to cling to each other for comfort, who can't work without company. And I just think that's short-sighted. Can I ask as well, while we're discussing this, Apple, if you're looking to reduce costs, Will you be reducing prices accordingly? No, I thought not. That's called greed. Pure greed. And if you spent as much time thinking up ways to thrill me rather than dreaming up draconian ways to dominate your employees, we'd all be much happier. That's my take. You've got to trust your employees, honestly. Apple, what are you thinking? And also, bad publicity. Don't need to be reading about this. Do the right thing. Get on with it. Oh, shall we go? Shall we get on to things that thrill me? Although I can't actually say this does, but it might do. You never know. Is that all right with you? That's fine with me. A wooden keyboard. Hmm, indeed. And it's not even CES silly season. I'm sure we discussed tech in weird materials a while back. Wasn't it leather? Wasn't it some weird leather contraption to put your phone in or, a, or an air tag? I'm sure it was. Anyway, now it's wood. It's somewhat expensive, for which read it costs more than a Mac Mini. You might need to sit down for this. I know I did. $745 plus shipping. It comes in walnut or cherry and it, the whole thing is wood, not just the key. So this isn't some thin veneer thing. It's solid wood with laser indented keycaps. And of course, using natural wood means every keyboard is unique. I can see you shaking your head here. So I'm thinking Mike's not really going to be in the market for this. But I don't, you know, spoiler alert, I, I won't say that. You never know. Might be persuaded as I carry on. It's got a protective coating to extend the life of the keyboard. And, you know, at that price, so it should, preferably gold plated. Uh, connects via Bluetooth, charges via USB-C, is Mac and PC compatible. Am I buying? <laughs> Are you kidding? Not just because they're currently out of stock either, but given the price, I'd rather buy the Mac Mini. So um, no spoilers. Where are you with this? Where am I? I'll stick with a keyboard that came with a Mac. Thank you very much. Mm. Remember what actually happened with the keyboard with your Mac? Or has it slipped your memory? It slipped my memory. Go on, remind uh, me. We had a show called something something in the Hungarian keyboard because when, we, when right. we ordered our last Macs I have no idea what you were doing probably it was to do with with changing the default keyboard that came with it which doesn't have a numeric keypad to one that does so while you were busy picking the one with your numeric keypad you forgot to make sure it was the English one and when I checked the order you said you know, check the order before I click submit there staring me in the face was a Hungarian keyboard 
But it did have a numeric keypad. <laughs> that could have proved to be a very expensive mistake, couldn't it? It could, but not as expensive as a wooden keyboard. That's true. I'm surprised Apple have let that pass. Just, just think of the markup Apple could put on that. Anyway, um, you got an English one in the end, and it did have a numeric keypad. So how much do you use that? The numeric keypad? Um, mm. I never actually used the numeric keypad. <laughs> Why did you buy that one then? <laughs> I do need that numeric keypad bit uh, for the arrow keys, because on parallels, they double up as end and home and page up and page down. There are arrow keys on the small one, but I know what you mean. They're not in the same place. They're, they're much smaller. And aren't they by some of the keys? They're not separate. And I do like my arrow keys separate. But I'm picky with a keyboard because I don't want to spend a fortune. I did love the first Mac keyboard that I ever had. It was uh, a cabled keyboard. It was the white clicky keys one with the transparent base. Collected crumbs like a boss. And I did switch to the low profile aluminium one when it was released, but I miss the numeric keypad and I need it because I have lots of shortcuts that I need for um, keyboard maestro macros. So I fast run out of keys. So what I then did was I got the low profile aluminium with a numeric keypad and it was so early on in its life, there was no Bluetooth option. I then switched to Amatius Mechanical. Loved it. Absolutely loved it. But it was too noisy most of the time. Um, I couldn't use it if I was recording videos. And I think at the time, because it was a while back, wasn't it? I think you were doing webinars in here in the office. I was. Yeah. Uh, and there was no way I could type. <laughs> You'd have heard it at the end of the street. So there was no way I could use that while you were doing your stuff. So I would have to swap keyboards. So it was just too noisy. So in the end, I swapped to a different Matthias, which was a clone of the Apple aluminium one, again with a numeric keypad. This did have Bluetooth and it was switchable between three devices. But after an update, and I think I'm going to blame Biggles here. I'm sure it was Biggles that did this. The keyboard became extremely erratic in terms of making an initial connection after a reboot. To the point, I needed to keep a second keyboard close by, an Apple one. Once I was logged in, the keyboard was fine, but that initial connection was just a time-sucking nightmare. I would sit there with it and just think, it'll connect, you know, it just needs a little bit longer. You could be 10 minutes and sometimes it would connect, sometimes it wouldn't. So... Worse than all of that with this Matthias keyboard, it was so identical to the Apple keyboard that it suffered from the same shiny key syndrome. The keyboards from Apple and the Matthias one, they always felt great at first, but within weeks, the almost imperceptible grain on the keys had gone, completely worn away. It did feel better if you cleaned it with isopropyl alcohol, but even that effect only lasted a couple of hours, not even a day. So I did some research and there was plenty of discussion about this exact issue on the Apple forums and beyond. One complaint related to a seven month old MacBook Pro and the keyboard looked like it had been polished with beeswax. Advice from the Apple faithful included telling the original poster to wash the hands more often. 
I'm pretty sure this was during COVID. We were all doing that. But he made the point that his previous laptop had shown none of this shine and he'd had it 10 years. So there was nothing in the way of practical advice for the poor soul, of course, just ex the expected blind devotion from the fanboys. But there was an acceptance that the plastic that Apple use does wear faster than it did previously. I wonder if this is due to Timmy's cost cutting. Anyway, last August, I spotted a new mechanical keyboard. It was from Logitech. Looked really nice. Problem? Rarer than hen's teeth. The price skyrocketed from £165 for a new one to over £300 for a second-hand one. Wasn't, wasn't having that, I can assure you. So I kept checking. No joy. The keyboard that I had, this Matthias, was so shiny and slippy by then that I started to look round at other options. And I came up with a £99 Logitech keyboard. It's called the Logitech MX Keys. It's wireless, it's backlit, it's got Bluetooth, it charges via USB-C. And just like the Matthias one, it is switchable via Bluetooth between three devices. Uh, one thing, so all of that was quite nice. I hadn't had backlit at that point, I don't think. Um, but all of that was quite nice. But it then said metal build. And I thought, well, that doesn't really make that much of a difference, does it? But when it arrived, it's much heavier than either the Apple keyboard or the Matthias, which sounds bad, but it's really not. Because being heavier, it stops it sliding all over the desk, which in turn prevents keyboard leg gate. Do you remember that one? I remember that one well. Yes. It was the three times that Apple needed to replace a keyboard of mine because one of the legs fell off. Now, when I say the legs fell off, when you actually look at the underside of an Apple keyboard back then, it wasn't really a leg in terms of it being attached other than by a sliver of glue. And mine just disintegrated soon as look at it. I ended up, because obviously I was still using these keyboards after they were out of their um, Apple Care period. I ended up having to buy some special tape to like manufacture a leg. I should have really got a 3D printer, shouldn't I? But just, just not great. It wasn't a great experience. But this Logitech keyboard, the one that I bought, I absolutely love it. I use it with my iMac mainly, but of course the switchable Bluetooth is fantastic. And despite eight months of constant use, it feels like it did the day it arrived. There is no sign whatsoever of shiny key syndrome. And it's still got, I mean, it's not friction on the keys. It's just that, just enough friction to make typing a complete pleasure. My one request of this would be for the battery to last longer. But that could just indicate how much I use it, though. Uh, the fact I work overnight, particularly, and I don't have a light on when I do. I'm very eco-friendly, aren't I? Just saying. But I, this backlight is constantly on. I would say it lasts about a week. You can use it while it's charging, unlike that Apple Magic Mouse. Thankfully, that element of Apple aesthetic design didn't catch on. So now it's a Logitech keyboard to match my Logitech mouse. The wooden one stands no chance of replacing my current setup. But do let us know if you're tempted by this expensive toy. It's a no from me and it's a no from Mike. Anyway, isn't it time for sharing some Excel for Mac love? Oh, we need the love bites. Love. 
Love fights. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Back in summer of 2021, I was asked if I'd deliver a session at the London Excel Meetup Group. Now, what is a meetup group? Well, it's what we used to call a user group, but it's organised via meetup, hence the name. That's uh, meetup.com. The group's actually been around for years, meeting each month in person in London. So social chat, a presentation, some beer or in our case, water. Uh, and then, of course, the pandemic hit. So Alan, who's the guy who runs it, took it online. So Alan and I kicked a few ideas around between us and eventually we settled on me doing a presentation about cube functions. I thought it would be a good idea if I attended a few meetups to see how it all worked and get to know the folks, etc. So I signed up to their meetup and started getting notifications of events, which I duly added to my calendar. And then I attended each month, participating in the online chat after the presentation. So that meant by the time it came to October, when my session was scheduled, people knew who I was. I also started attending a few other meetup group meetings. Um, there was the Romanian meetup group, although that's difficult because it's 5.30 UK time and I'm often training. And there's the Toronto meetup group, which is uh, that goes from 10.30 till midnight hour time. So it's late, but I make the effort to stay awake. What I love about the Excel community is the lack of egos. Whether you've got a hundred or a million YouTube subscribers, whether you've written hundreds of books or none at all, everybody treats everyone equally and with respect, unlike some other communities I could mention, but I won't. No, don't. Don't. We'll be taken off air. Yeah, I'm not I'm not going to go down that uh, that route or that <laughs> that rabbit hole, as I also said last week. Anyway, in 2020, there was supposed to be a two-day in-person Excel conference in London, which got scuppered by COVID. So they postponed that until 2021, and they took it online. And then 2022, they took it online again. And there was talk of going back to face-to-face -face, uh, this year, but again, they chose to hold it as a virtual event. Now, I'd already made my mind up that if the 2023 conference was virtual, I'd apply to be a speaker. There was a rigorous application process involving writing a submission document and making a short video of me delivering a presentation. Wasn't that the one that Lola got involved in? It was. <laughs> she decided she wanted a starring role. She barked as I was partway through it. So I scooped her up and she had a starring role. It's actually on my YouTube channel. I'll stick a link to it in the uh, in the notes. Yeah, so one day I got an email from the conference organisers asking me if I'd like to deliver a presentation. I had a Zoom meeting with them and the upshot of which was I ended up actually delivering three sessions. One of them was using Excel on a Mac and that was in February. And I had the pleasure of delivering that session again last week for the Toronto Meetup Group. Now, because of the hour difference, because they put their clocks forward and we hadn't. That was actually half past nine at night instead of half past ten. So that actually was a excellent planning on your it part. It was. It was. A, it was a reasonable finish. So what did I cover? Well, I started with what's missing. Always a good place to start. Primary thing, of course, that's missing is the data model. And the data model is critical these days when you're working with large amounts of data. It's an important feature of Excel. Why 
Microsoft haven't added that into the Mac version. I don't know, but there we go. It's uh, it's a big thing. It's missing. And you have to talk about that, particularly when you've got a room full of um, of Excel window, Excel for Windows geeks, shall we call them. I also mentioned... So you horrify them in the first 30 seconds, really? Mm, yeah. <laughs> I also mentioned and showed Parallels. Many people actually weren't aware. They knew what Parallels was, but they weren't about aware about the licensing implications. Um, so the fact that you actually need a Windows license, and if you've got 365 and you install uh, Office on Parallels, you are actually taking up one of your, one of your seats or installations. I've then talked about the interface differences, the fact that you've got two menus on the Mac. You've got the ribbon menu and you've got the app menu. And an interesting one is setting the date format. If you apply long date format to a cell with a date in it on Windows, the format you get is day, full month, full year. On a Mac, it's similar, but it actually includes the day name, the full day name. The implication of that is that you have to widen the column or change the format. So what I did is I showed them how to change the default uh, format going through system preferences. And what's interesting there is even though Excel applies long date format, you have to change the format of full date. Very illogical, but there you go. Well, you know me and dates in Excel. Yes, let's not go there. How often are bad words said, Mike? Let's not go there. I only wanted to create some basic data for a data merge with Affinity Publisher. Oh, basically a case of giving up, wasn't it? Didn't I have to put in an extra column so it was formatted right in the end? I think you did in the end, yeah. It was a dirty hack, put it like that. It just wouldn't an, work. So it was a dirty hack. A definite dirty hack. I then went on and talked about symbols and the colour picker, because what I like about the Mac version of Excel is it lets you insert symbols and emoticons or emojis. I don't know what the word is. I'm obviously too old to know. Is it emojis? Emoticons? Either. Okay. I'll go with that then. But it's certainly, it, whatever the word is, it allows you to insert them much easier than in Windows where you have to know the font and you have to know the ASCII code. And you can also easily insert symbols in formulas. As I recall this demonstration of yours, hadn't you done the unthinkable and installed a point update just before the presentation and then managed to crash the thing nine times trying to insert the emojis? Or was that a different session? <laughs> No, no, that was in February. That was in February. Yeah. So I... You'd learned your lesson by March. No, you? I did. I updated. I updated. Uh, that's that's why last week, as, as I said to you on last week's show, I nearly installed, um, not Biggles, um, Ventura. Because I thought whilst... Yes, you're on Monty, aren't you? Whilst I was in the mood for doing updates on the system to make sure Excel and, and the, the OS was up to date, I thought, hmm, should I install Ventura? But no, I didn't. Fear not, dear MacBiter. Sense prevailed in the end. It did. It, it, it did. But the colour picker went down well. Now, PowerPoint on Windows has a built-in colour picker. Why they didn't add that to Excel on Windows, I have no idea. But, of course, the Mac has the benefit that it's part of the OS anyway. So I showed them how to pick up a colour from an image and use it on the background colour for the cell, which went down really well. I think I used my ice cream example. So I selected the strawberry ice cream and we had strawberry colour background in the cell. 
cute. You mean I, it was pink? I thought it was rather cool anyway. Mm, pink stinks, though. Remember. How could I forget? <laughs> then I looked at pivot tables because there's a few gotchas when it comes to pivot tables, particularly with filtering and anything that relies on the data model. And generating unique counts and grouping by months and quarters, they're, they're, they're all strange and, and, and gotchery. So I ended up... We're back to dates. Excel does just not handle dates in a way that's logical. No. So I showed them, showed them a few workarounds to that. And then we went on to VBA because although VBA is supported on the Mac, the VBA editor is actually sadly lacking. There's no support for user forms and there's no support for ActiveX. ActiveX, of course, is a Windows technology anyway. So if you add an ActiveX control onto your Excel spreadsheet, it's not going to work on the Mac. And although you, you, although there is a user form section in the VBA editor, when you open it, Having created VBA forms on Windows, they're just totally empty. There's nothing there. And then we went on to La Creme de la Creme, which is Power Query. I've talked about that at length many times. Used to import data into Excel and clean up data. And until recently, it was only available in Excel for Windows. And Microsoft added that to the Mac. It is still lacking in functionality compared to Windows, but it's a start. And uh, they are adding features. Microsoft are adding features on a, on a regular basis. I love that. I actually like Power Query. Yeah, you're surprised, aren't you? I you're am. thinking to yourself, she's not got a clue how it works. No, I don't. But I do have lots of requests and requirements for, for data to be tidied up. And I just tell you what I want to happen and you feed it through Power Query. Yes. And vicariously, I enjoy it. Mm. <laughs> Everybody needs a mic. Yes. Both sessions, the good news is both sessions went well. The one at the conference and the one at the meetup. Not surprisingly, being a niche topic, the attendance wasn't as great as some of the more popular topics. But those who attended found it interesting. Because you never know when you might join a company that is Mac only and you want to continue to use your favourite spreadsheet application. And no, I don't mean numbers or Google Sheets. Oh. Google Sheets. Love it. Logical. Except when it won't do things and then I have to go to you and say, no, I'm, this is what I'm trying to do. And I've looked at that and I've looked, it doesn't do it. And then you come along and, and fix it for me. But yes. Yes, I, I was there for one of those sessions. It was very good. I enjoyed that. Oh, an app review. Um, as is typical, as soon as we press stop on recording the last show, Oh, and that was within living memory, wasn't it? Just saying. Um, it arrived. What did? The invitation to test Google Bard. Didn't we say in the show, we'll see that sometime never? And I was like buying a five-year diary to, to plan it. And it took maybe two hours and we were in. Unbelievable. So we had access. How was it? Well, here you go. It was much more like the chat GPT interface than Notion or Craft. So if you've tried AI in Notion or Craft, it's very integrated into the app itself. It tends to look like a command line or an Alfred interface. Whereas Bard, obviously, you are opening it up in a browser and it looks like chat GPT. The first thing that struck me was there were caveats all over the place regarding the accuracy of the output. 
like they didn't have any faith whatsoever in their own technology. Um, to the effect of one of these warnings was Bard may display inaccurate or offensive information that doesn't represent Google's views. <laughs> That's a bit much, isn't it? And there was also, I mean, that was like the main thing. But then later on, as you're typing in, it's saying the output might offend. You know, you're sure you want to carry on. I just found that most unlike Google. So we started with the obvious. Well, you did, didn't you? I put uh, who is Mike Thomas Excel expert, and it was spot on. Mm. Sadly, it didn't fare so well finding me. No amount of cajoling could persuade it to admit that it actually knew who I was. Toys out of pram right there. Let's just say she wasn't pleased. I wasn't. Given the Google this button right next to that, found me instantly. Still, I pressed on. I asked it about the MacBytes podcast. And, again, it was spot on. Well, it was, if you ignored the bit about MacBytes being a weekly podcast. When we all know every show is when you least expect it. Anyway, the research continued over the weekend. There was a match on. It was a Euro 2024 qualifying match between England and the Ukraine. So the prompt that I used, and, the, and I did decide deliberately to test it on this, because it's contemporary information. So the prompt that I used was write a 500 word review of the England football match against the Ukraine on the 26th of March 2023. Bard was bang on accurate and it was beautifully written as well. In addition to that, it gave me three alternative versions to choose from, which it seems to do with the majority of the output if it's relevant. So if you ask it for an answer to a question, it's going to give you the answer to the question. But if you ask it to write something, you seem to get three alternative versions that you can choose from. Then I took exactly the same prompt and I asked Notion to do the same. Oh dear, oh dear, oh dear. <clears throat> now the training data is completely different. There's a cutoff of late 2021. But if I provide a date, my take on it is if I provide a date in the prompt, which I did here, and it's beyond that cutoff date, I think the AI should stop and say it's not qualified to have an opinion. At the very least, it should warn you that that date is beyond its training data. Did it? No. It wrote a complete fantasy the highlights of which were the glaring errors. It started off, um, the game was in Kiev in the Ukraine. Well, that would have been tricky, wouldn't it? It wasn't. It was at Wembley. Uh, they said it was a World Cup qualifier. It wasn't. It was the Euros. Marcus Rashford wasn't playing. He was actually on holiday, but that's an entirely different saga for which he might be fined. But he certainly wasn't on the pitch as they claimed. And while England did score two goals, they didn't score them in the first 10 minutes of the second half. They did win 2-0, but Harry Kane didn't score both of the goals. So in that test, Bard won hands down. I think it's going to be pretty much going to be a case of using the best AI system for the specific job in hand, which means putting a lot of effort in if you want to get the best out of all of these systems. I asked it to give me a 500-word history of United, that old chestnut. That seems to be our staple demo, doesn't it? That's because it was so bad the first time. There was nothing right with it, was there? No, and whilst not 100% accurate, it was much more accurate than the one I tried in Craft uh, that we 
talked about in the last show. It's said Matt Busby took over as manager in 1930. And if that was true, given he was 21 in 1930, he would have been one of the, uh, if not the youngest United manager ever. He actually took over in 1945. I also asked it to write a line of DAX code for me. DAX being the language that's built into Power Pivot and Power BI. I asked it to sum all the values in the salary column of Table 1, where department is sales and location is the UK. This was an easy task for Notion AI. I actually did that last week. Bard's response was to tell me that it's still learning coding skills, so at the moment it couldn't help me. It's trained to do things like help me write lists about different topics, compare things, or build travel itineraries. Those are its words, by the way, not mine. And did I want to try any of those now? I declined its kind offer. In terms of accuracy in relation to United, which I think we've tried with every AI we've got our hands on, Canva won that one. They had an event last week and they've added AI pretty much to everything they do, or magic as they call it. And part of that was the ability to generate a presentation from a prompt. So I asked for a 12-slide presentation about the history of Manchester United. Happy to report, no glaring errors whatsoever. I did only get 10 slides, though, and that seems to be the current limit. But you can add more slides with a different prompt and you get 10 slides per batch. The only time it choked was when I asked it. So what I'm, I'm thinking in terms of 10 slides, 10 slides, right. OK, what we'll do is we'll do the 50s where I would have expected the Munich air crash to be mentioned. We'll do the 60s. And I would have expected in the 60s, um, like the European Cup win and stuff like that. 70s, bit dicey, didn't win much, got relegated, stuff like that. So what I decided was, you know, I'll ask it by decade. So I did. So I asked it to add details of Tommy Doherty's tenure in the 1970s. And it came back and said, I can't do that. It's too political. I'm like, pardon. So I, I tried rewording it three times. Every time I got the answer, I can't do that. It's too political. Now, I know he left under a cloud, having made off with a physio's wife, but I wouldn't deem that political. And they didn't need to mention it in the slides because I didn't intend to. So a bit strange, that one. I don't know if there is something that is political in relation to the name Tommy Doherty. And it's a different Tommy Doherty. I don't know. We'll find out probably. <laughs> But what about actually using the content generated by AI? I found an article from Medium. Um, it was published in January this year when AI was probably in its infancy. And it was how, the, how Medium were approaching AI generated content. And there was a couple of quotes in there. One was from a reader. And this person had said, I'm not interested in my paid subscription subsidising AI. I signed up to pay humans their worth for doing real work. I don't want to give AI the eyeball hours or oxygen on a subscription platform. There were many other comments, all pretty similar, to be honest. So the decision that Medium came to is we welcome the responsible use of AI assistive technology on Medium to promote transparency and help set reader expectations. We require that any story created with AI assistance be clearly labelled as such. So for now, when we encounter content we believe is AI generated, but that fact is not disclosed, we won't distribute it across Medium's network. Now, when it says won't distribute, I don't know if that means it won't allow it or it just won't promote it. 
But other platforms have taken a much stricter approach with blanket bans. Here's the new rules from Fanfare. Any aspiring writer who submits AI content will be barred at the gates like the uncivilised barbarians they are. Any current fanfare writer who submits an AI-generated story will likewise be shown the exit. No second chances, no redos. This may sound harsh, but I want to be completely clear on this. The issue with that that I have is how do they decide if something is written with the assistance of AI? Are they running it through some form of AI or is it a random process? Because we all strive to write in a way that adheres to some sort of standard of style, at a minimum comprehension. But if, if I'm writing for my blog, I will write in one style. If I'm writing for business content or a manual, I will adopt a different style. I, I'm wondering how they will understand that something, well, how they'll be accurate that something is AI generated? And what's the process for appealing? Because it doesn't sound like there is one. How do you prove you wrote something that AI didn't? Because the AI is trained on millions or even billions of words that at some point were written by humans. There's a chance some of it might be seen as AI generated. So what of the false positives? I think that's terrifying. I don't think these blanket ban approaches have been thought, thought through fully. Although I can see the point of view, I guess they want real content and not AI generated content on their platform. I actually don't think I would use it to write blog posts and articles anyway. I use it for generating a number of alternative titles for YouTube videos. And even then, I may not even use any of them. Last week, I actually asked it to do just that, and I ended up using a title from my head, although I did add one AI-generated word. I love what you said there towards the beginning when you said real, <laughs> because there is a perception that human-generated content is more real than AI-generated content. But as a reader, do you care if the content you read is AI-generated or not? And what constitutes AI-generated? The last time I mentioned generating a Seven Things article and ending up not using a single thing from it, like you. But it did sit next to me while it sparked my own ideas because I was looking at it thinking that that's garbage, that's rubbish, that's not very interesting, is it? So from a, it, it just sparked me as like, I want to write something wholly different to that because that is just blah. But if you used it in that way where you end up not using a single word, do you need to disclose it? Because I didn't use a single word. And then if you extend that further, what about human research assistants? When I very, very first started in the law, my first job, uh, I think I'd just I think I'd got my A-levels, but I certainly didn't have a degree at that point. I was a research assistant and I was reading through like five or ten archlever binders full of content that had been retrieved from the British Library, the British Library being it's not like a library on the corner. This has every article ever published. So you go there, you give them a list of what you want. And that was what was in these binders. We had photocopies of it. You have to pay for each article. And there was a lot of information in there that I needed to summarise for the barrister. But I'm not paid the money the barrister is when he's on his hind legs yakking about it and doesn't disclose that I did some of that work. So do you acknowledge human assistance? 
it's a minefield of potential pitfalls, this. Um, I do have a subscription to Medium. There are some great writers on there, but there are some articles that are absolutely dire drivel in terms of being badly structured, poorly written or just plain waffle. And that was before the AI kicked in. Has it got worse after mass AI access? Maybe. Many of the stories do have great titles. Maybe they're, they're AI generated. So you look at the title, you think that looks interesting, but then it's let down by the content. In what way? Generic content, nothing specific. Nothing has come from experience. Nothing where two concepts or more are drawn on to create something new. So I started thinking about it and I thought of a couple of examples of my own. First example, I did a YouTube video, uh, Snapshots in Affinity Publisher. Now, snapshots don't exist natively in Affinity Publisher. You won't find them mentioned in the help system. So conclusion, not there, can't use them. But Studio Link is there, which links to Affinity Designer, which does have snapshots. Problem solved. But the AI doesn't know that. It can't work it out. It's not a thinking machine. It takes someone who actually understands both those features, actually uses the app, feels the frustration at the lack of snapshots and works out a solution. Or in most cases, a dirty hack. Second example was um, the last video that I put up, which was pre-flight and the secret notes to self system in Affinity Publisher. That was another case of needing to join the dots to create something useful. Pre-flight has pre-flight profiles. Publisher has pre-flight comments. Use the two together and you can create a notes to self system. But again, the AI is not going to be able to join the dots in the way it would need to. There's far too much content that I see that doesn't seem to have had the benefit of much proactive thought. That doesn't mean it's AI generated, though. It might be. It might not be. Increasingly, though, the perspective is going to become critical. And the perspective, the AI doesn't have a perspective. People have a perspective. And it's the perspective that provides the value. So... It could, I guess people could argue it's got a perspective, but it's not its superpower. It's always going to be the same perspective. It isn't going to change its mind because it's not thinking. Um, trusted sources with personal perspectives are going to be more sought after, after the more AI we're subjected to, because raw AI feels like junk food. It's OK while you consume it, but not good in the long term. But do let us know what you think. We would love to hear your thoughts on this very, very hot topic. Now, a practical form of AI is in an app that I've used for a good couple of years now, Text Sniper. It is a fantastic utility for grabbing text from anywhere on the screen. The superpower is grabbing text from places that you can't copy and paste from. Uh, that's the biggest issue I see when I mention Text Sniper to people. Well, I can just copy and paste. No, no, no. It's for copying text that's in a place that you can't copy and paste from. So it could be text in images videos, presentations. It's not the first app that could do that, but it's definitely the best in terms of speed and accuracy. I had an app and I could never remember the name of it. I did use it a lot, but I could never remember the name of it. It's called Picatext or Picatext, depending on how you want to pronounce it. And it just it wasn't as smooth. It wasn't as buttery smooth as Tech Sniper is, but it did the job. And Snagit also had the same feature, but I found it a bit slow. 
Yeah, I used Snagit. I used it on a weekly basis when we did uh, the Brooklyn shows because remember Kath used to WhatsApp in her Rev story. Oh, yes. It was a story every week, wasn't it, about the Rev blue jeans from Neil Diamond? Yeah. And quite often, I think she did it as a screenshot and pasted it into WhatsApp. And then she put it in Apple Notes and then screenshotted it, which I see a lot of people do. Yeah. I mean, I'm guessing she didn't realise she could actually copy it from Apple Notes and send it via WhatsApp. So you're getting a screen grab. Yeah. So I needed to get it out of there and into the script that I then used because uh, I used to read it out on the show and also read it out on the uh, the news on the Sunday um, so I, I would use Snagit for that. I would use Tech Sniper now. It's faster, but my only issue is remembering the shortcut key. I set your shortcut key to be the same as mine, which might sound controlling. No might about it. It is very controlling. In my defence, it's me that Mike is going to ask when he needs to use it. And I can't be doing with remembering multiple shortcuts. It's her way or the highway. Exactly. I think the default was command shift and two, um, but don't quote me on that because I changed it. That was already burnt on my brain for screen float. So I use lots of different screen capture utilities because each one of them has a superpower. Uh, screen float is twofold. One, you can hover it over everything else so you can refer to it. So for modal dialogues, it, it's brilliant. Uh, panels in the Affinity apps, it's absolutely fantastic. Um, but it doesn't capture text. So I changed it to Control, Shift and T. And the rationale for that was it's the two modifiers on the left hand side of the keyboard and T for text. It's not rocket science, Mike. Plus the fact if you're not a keyboard shortcut person, which I think we can safely assume that Mike isn't, there is the menu bar icon if you prefer. Actually, looking at the menu bar icon, Text Sniper does a lot more than just grab text. They've added the option to grab text via your mobile device using the camera. Uh, you can activate QR codes on the desktop, which I find a lifesaver. When I'm in sessions and there's no link to the download, they, they've just flashed a QR code on the screen. Because otherwise, I'm grabbing a device, hopefully before the code vanishes. And even if I do manage to get that resource, you know, take the picture, get the thing going to it, then the resource is on my device and not on the desktop where I'm actually taking notes. Another addition is the ability for Text Sniper to read text to you. And I use that option a lot with standard text that I've written. Not in Text Sniper, but the principle is the same and I highly recommend it. I know you do. It's me that does the reading. TechSniper is one of those apps that is that good you forget it's not part of macOS. It's available direct, it's available in setup, and it's available via the Mac App Store. They seem to have changed the licensing. It's now $7.99 for one seat, $9.99 for three seats, or $11.99 for unlimited seats. Now, back in the day, I think it was $7.99 and that was it. They've obviously changed the licensing because in the Mac App Store, of course, you can install it on as many devices as you like. So they've added £4 to it. I went for the Mac App Store version ages ago because the direct version licensing is managed via Paddle. And we all know how much I love Paddle. Paddle powered pandemonium in the licensing department, if you recall, a previous show title. 
Anyway, it's a critical utility and it is well worth the investment. Even if you have to pay to have a tattoo of the shortcut key to aid your failing memory, Mike. <clears throat> Just saying. Anyway, I'm mentioning it specifically because we'll be doing a demo of it, Tech Sniper in action, as it were, in the next MacBytes After Hours. So don't miss it. But that's it for this episode of MacBytes. As always, we'd love to hear from you. So send your questions, comments and queries by email to the crew at macbytes.co.uk or use the contact form in the website. And of course, we also have a very active Slack chat room that's open 24-7. Go to macbytes.co.uk slash Slack and join in the conversation. You can follow MacBytes on Twitter at twitter.com slash MacBytes. And you can follow me on Twitter at twitter.com slash Thomas Mike. You can follow me at twitter.com slash Elaine Giles. And you can follow me at twitter.com slash MacBytesiri. So until the next time, this has been Elaine and Mike bringing you MacBytes. Goodbye. Goodbye and see you next time. What's with all the noise? What did you say? I said, what's with all the noise? I can't hear you with all the noise. For crying out loud man, I said what's with all the noise? Oh right, I'm upgrading the infrastructure here at MacBytes headquarters. The networking? No. The internet connection? No. What then? I'm installing something completely new. And you're installing it in the front porch? Yes, indeed. It's the perfect place for it. It is? Yes, that's what the manual says. So what exactly is it? It's a new and exclusive device. Where did you get it from? I know someone who knows someone in Cupertino. So what's it called? The prototype is called Timmy's Totalitarian Time Tracker. And the final name? The I Watch You is favorite right now. With the pro model called, the I watch you like a hawk. What does it do? It's genius. It'll help us no end. I'm not seeing how, but to explain. Every time they arrive or leave they have to check in or out. Timmy uses one at Apple to spy on his team. So he knows if they've been on site you mean, instead of staying home to work? Exactly. So you see it's just what we need to track the crew isn't it? I'm not quite sure you have grasped the nuances of this working from home thing, sorry. What do you mean? They live here. I know that. They work here. I know that. They haven't left the building in over three years. I know that too. Then join the dots, dear boy. At what point exactly do they need to check in or check out? Oh, drat and double drat. Exactly. Oh well, I can only live in hope. True hope is swift and flies with swallows' wings. Kings it makes gods and meaner creatures kings. What? Expectation is the root of all heartache. That wasn't you. That was Google Bard, wasn't it? I am not obliged to divulge my sources.